Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. We are uh, for Lent. Uh, this is the third Sunday of Lent. We're working through a sermon series on the topic of blood, exploring blood in the Bible, building up to Good Friday uh, when we will talk about the blood of Christ. Um, and so last week we talked about the blood of the covenant and today the blood of liberation. So we're talking about um, essentially Passover and the Exodus event. Uh, and then next Sunday, Kara is going to come and preach on the blood of new life and some of the Leviticus laws about blood. And then we'll do blood of atonement and this will be a beautiful time to reflect. Um, another thing we do at Lent, I just noticed there's a lot of new faces here today, but we, um, there's a tree down by the river that we've chosen as a weeping tree. And Lent is a season where we um, honor the grief and the sorrow of this year and, and honor um, our hope that Christ um, enters into our grief and our sorrow with us. Uh, and so if any of you would like to go for a walk down to that weeping tree, um, there's a bin of, of prayer ties, and you, you take a moment and tie a tie up on a branch. And it's beautiful. I've walked, I walk by there with my dog pretty often. And we don't know any of the people in Bones who have been visiting that tree, but the tree is currently covered in ties, and it's really beautiful. And if you can go on there by yourself, um, or if you'd like to go with me or one of the elders and really speak into the grief of this year, we would love to tie a prayer tie up with you. And when we do Good Friday as a church... We'll have a short service here on that Friday, and then we will walk together in silence from here to the tree. And in silence, take all those ties off as if taking the body of Christ down from the cross. And then on Saturday, a few of us are turning all those prayer ties into an art piece for Easter Sunday. So it will be beautiful. Just want to keep promoting that uh, reaping tree as an embodied way of um, entering into this season of Lent together as a church and as a neighbor. So. Today, we are talking about the blood of liberation. Definitely my favorite story in the Old Testament is the, the story of the Exodus. Probably my favorite story because it is the story of the whole Bible. Um, and the, the story of the Exodus is being repeated over and over and over into the end of Revelation. And we as a church, it is our primary job to repeat the story of the Exodus um, in our world, in our time, in our neighborhood. Um, and so it's a fantastic story. And it's incredibly relevant to where we are at today. So, um, as a starting point, I'm going to read to you a little bit from Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8. So, um, the Hebrew people have been enslaved for quite a while. This is Exodus chapter 1. It says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase. And in the event of a war, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built storehouses and supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to fear the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives very bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. So the king of Egypt went to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. And he said, 
When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthing stool, if it is a boy, you shall kill him, and if it is a girl, she may live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong um, because the midwives feared God. Um, they were given families. <clears throat> then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile River, but let the girls live. So the story begins at a river, the Nile River. And it's profound because um, there are these people who are foreigners in to the eyes of the Egyptians. And foreigners are not a bad thing. In fact, foreigners can be a nice, lovely thing, uh, uh, unless there's too many of them. And this is true in our world today. You know, you might, uh, I, we hear this all the time, whenever there's like a, a refugees. Well, we don't want too many. A few would be nice, but not too many. Um, I've heard um, a biblical scholar who teaches um, in the States, and, and he specializes in immigration in, in the Bible, in, in borders in the Bible. And he says, you know, you could have a big city in the States, and it's nice that there's Chinatown, and there's Little Italy, uh, and, and you know, there, there's enough. There, there, there's, there's immigrants, but there's only a few, and it's nice because it makes us look cultural. But if there's too many, there's great fear. There's too many, he says. So because he fears the boys and not the girls, he tells the midwives to kill the, the little boys. The midwives defy the king, and they don't do it. So Pharaoh takes matters into his own hand and tells all of the Egyptians that they may go and throw the baby boys into the Nile River. It's a very profound story. Um, and there's this grand significant um, reversal that takes place here in the next chapter. And I know many of you are familiar with the story, but um, this significant reversal is that the river is a source, of, it's a place of death, it's a place of dying. The baby boys are being thrown into it. it, it, it that's a terrifying, like, worse night, like, that's horrifying. Um, but it's actually that very river that um, leads to little baby boy named Moses uh, to be saved. Uh, Moses uh, is born in this time, and his mother and his sister kind of conspire to, to save him and to hide him, and they hide him on the banks of the river in the reeds. And the river that should have been a place um, of dying is a place for living and a place of being saved for Moses. And it's profound. This little boy who was uh, going to be a victim of a, a certainly a genocide event um, is saved. And he's actually saved by an Egyptian uh, member of the royalty who then raises little Moses as her own. And she's actually the one who names Moses, so it's pretty profound. He doesn't have a name in the story until she gives it to him. It's a grand reversal. So I just want to focus because we're, we're talking about blood, and yet blood and water are the profound themes in this story. Um, the Nile River. The Nile River, like sometimes when we read the Bible, we think these ancient, ancient, ancient stories from so, so long ago, and the people back then just weren't as, you know, intelligent and sophisticated and civilized as we are today. But the stories are not, we have to caution ourselves not to read it that way. The Nile River, like any great river in, in any great city, is really the, the heart of the entire system of life. The Nile River is massive. Um, the Nile River is the entire Egyptian economy. The Egyptian empire wouldn't exist if it weren't for the Egyptian, uh, sorry, the Nile River. The Nile River is um, the source of food, <laughs> a, a source of many resources. 
Uh, every year at runoff, a whole bunch of fertile soil and silt and mud flows down from the mountains, and uh, that fertilizes and, and makes for very, very, very rich fertile soil on the banks of the Nile River. Um, so it, it is the source of their food, um, their agriculture. It's a means of travel. You could travel by boat. Um, you could trade. You could make contact with other nations. Um, it's absolutely critical for transportation, uh, for materials, for building projects, for any large-scale endeavor. It is the critical lifeline, and it literally brings life to the desert. In the Egyptian culture, uh, the Nile River was a god or a goddess named Hapi. Um, and this god is depicted in a lot of ancient um, Egyptian hieroglyphics. And um, this god, the god of the river, um, they had ceremonies every year when the, the runoff would begin because it meant that the god is here, the god is coming. Um, and Hapi was a, a fertility god or goddess and um, was highly esteemed and praised and worshipped by the Egyptian people. And that might sound strange to you, but um, it's very much still the case today. I think of the Bow River here in Calgary. Calgary exists because the Bow River is here in Calgary. That's it. That's why we started a, a city is because the Bow River was here. The Bow River is um, a profound source. Like if the Bow River dried up, there'd be no more Calgary. And it would affect a lot more than Calgary. We are quite privileged that we live fewer than 200 kilometers from the source of the river. Not a lot of people in the world live less than 200 kilometers from the source of their drinking water. The glacier that, that, that sources the Bow River is less than 200 kilometers away. However, between here and just past Lake Louise, where that glacier is, the Bow River is dammed 11 times. 11 hydroelectric dams between here and the Bow Glacier. How many thousands of homes, the electricity that they have is generated because of that river? And that's only in 200, meters, uh, 200 kilometers. The Bow River joins the North Saskatchewan and flows all the way to the Hudson Bay. The entire nation of Canada. That's our river. Without it, game over. The jig is up. It's not a f an, an old-fashioned thing for the entire life of the economy and everyone's well-being to be connected to the river. So this story begins at the heart of the empire, the Nile River. And so, in Exodus 2, something amazing happens in the story. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 11, it says, One day after little Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own kinfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to one who was in the wrong, why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? And he answered, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was very afraid. He thought, uh-oh, they know. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. So uh, what a profound uh, liminal space that Moses is in. He is both an Egyptian and he is a Hebrew. And he cannot bear the violence being enacted against the Hebrews. And he still cannot bear the violence the Hebrews are enacting against each other. Um, in this radical eruption of anger, um, Moses confronts an Egyptian and an Egyptian is killed. Uh-oh. The next part of the story, moving on. Chapter 3. <clears throat> so Moses has fled. He is a, 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 a fugitive. He's fled. He's left. He's, he's like, I'm not going to worry about these problems anymore. He's fled. He started a new life. He lives in Midian. Um, he's gotten married. He's, he's having some kids. He's just like living a nice life. But God has a plan. In Exodus 3, 1 to 8, it says, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must go and see this great sight, why this bush is not being burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the fire, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then from the fire, the voice said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the next thing we hear from the God character in this story, I have observed the misery of my people. That's the first time in the Bible God calls anybody my people. I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. I have come down. I've heard their cry. I've seen their suffering. And now I am about to do something. They will disrupt the whole system. Um, I have a slide. Some of you, if you've ever taken a course with me at Ambrose, you've seen this a few times, but it's like my go-to. Um, five points, beginning points uh, for getting the narrative of emancipation, or as Walter Brueggemann calls it, the juice of emancipation underway. Five beginning points in this story. The very first moment of, of um, the system being broken open is that these midwives fear God and dare to defy Pharaoh. The little decision they made that's the beginning of the great unraveling, the great reversing of the whole system. Number two, in Exodus 2 verse 10, Moses observes the Egyptian brutalizing the Hebrews and kills him. There's fierce confrontational action. Number three, the Israelites have been groaning and crying out. They brought their pain to speech. Pharaoh, you see, did not care that the Hebrews were suffering. He cared only if they would name it. You can be in pain, but don't talk about it how the system has to work. Naming the pain would become power. Naming the pain is a political energy. And so it is the voiced pain of the people that mobilize God. God comes. I've heard their cries. It's really profound. I, this isn't in my script, which is immediately dangerous. Um, but uh, it's pretty profound. I've, I've done a, a study before on lament in the Bible and, and, and crying out and telling the truth about your suffering. It's pretty powerful. Um, in this book by Walter Brueggemann, he writes that, um, the empire doesn't want you to talk about your pain. If you start talking about your pain, they quickly try and sell you something. <laughs> Turn it back on you. They commodify your pain. Oh, you got pain? Buy this. Your pain will go away, and then you buy it, and your pain doesn't go away. And if you dare complain again, well, there's another product. And the empire is always trying to make a buck off of your pain. And you would think, okay, well, then don't go to the empire with your pain. What about the church? Brueggemann says, in history in the West, the church has not been any better. The church might not try to commodify your pain and make money off of it, but they still turn it back to you sometimes in that they turn it into guilt. It's your fault that you're in pain. You've not had enough faith. You've not read the Bible enough. You've not gone to church enough. It's your fault. So no one's allowed to talk about their pain. And then eventually the pain is that I'm embarrassed that I'm so bad with money. <laughs> I feel guilty <laughs> that I'm so bad with money. And then great, everybody's quiet and the system is never disrupted. The radical act that begins the disruption of the system is that people in pain dare to speak about it. They dare to bring it to speech. They dare to name their pain. That's how every great revolution in our history has begun, with this, a group of people who dare to tell the truth about their pain. And that truth-telling energizes a movement, and that truth-telling becomes a march. It's a beginning point in the story. And number four, the hidden bush 
the voice of God appears. And the voice of God simply says, I have heard the telling of the pain. I've heard it. And then in number five, this is really important. In three verse 10, God says to Moses, you go to Pharaoh. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just say, if God wanted to end slavery, God will do it. We don't have to worry about that. But God goes to Moses and says, you go to Pharaoh. And so the entry of the holy God into the narrative interruption leads to bold, dangerous human action. God couldn't do it without Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, and sends them to Pharaoh. It's the beginning point of emancipation. I'm having a good time right now. I don't know. So, moving forward. There's a problem, though, a big problem. Nobody knows this God, certainly not any of the Egyptians or Pharaoh. It says um, Moses responds to this wonderful speaking bush. Um, and in verse um, <clears throat> 13, but Moses said to God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will say, who is this God? <laughs> what is his name? Like they've been there for four, hundreds of years. They, do they know this God? Probably not. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the I am, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. And so, <clears throat> they don't know who you are, Moses says. I'm hearing about you for the first time in this moment. I'm also a fugitive. <laughs> It's not really safe for me to travel back. I haven't been there in many years. I've abandoned my people. I, you know, there's a complicated feelings for Moses, no doubt, in this moment. And, and no one knows who you are. And that's a powerful um, moment in the whole book of Exodus because nobody ever knows who the God of the slaves are in any society in the world. The God of the slaves, that must be an insignificant, a weak God. Nobody knows that God. They, we all know the gods of the empire. But nobody knows the name of the gods, of the people whose names nobody knows. Who will I say that you are? And that's the first moment in the entire Bible that God speaks his name. It's the introduction of God, right there in that fear of how will they know who you are? And then later down in verse 18, um, God says uh, to Moses, they will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, or the I am, the God of the Hebrews, that's the God of the slaves, has met with us. Let us now go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. I know, however, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand, says the Lord, and strike Egypt with all my wonders, and I will perform them there. And after that, he will let you go. And guess what happens? The, wouldn't it be a dream if Moses was like, Pharaoh, you need to not have slavery. It's not, it's not good for them. It's good for you, it's not good for them. No more slavery, okay? Good talk. And Pharaoh's like, you're so right. I've not thought of this. Holy moly, I would like to not use slavery. It's pretty wild, right? How could the king of a nation think it, it's at, at all okay to use hungry enslaved people to build your storehouses for you to keep your excess? What? How did we get there? We don't know anything about that in 2022. <clears throat> so, guess what 
the Pharaoh says, something that you've all heard before, and you've all even heard it in the news, I bet, in the last two weeks. Uh, wait, wait, we're in March? At least in the last eight weeks, wait for it. So it says in verse five, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is this Lord? Why should I heed him and let Israel go? I don't know this God. Why, why should I listen to this God? Absolutely not. I will not let Israel go. And Moses and Aaron said, the God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. So you not must let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. They don't know this God. <laughs> he said, why would I listen to this God? And then in that same chapter, um, in verse four, it says, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to work. He says they're lazy. The Pharaoh continued, they are more numerous than the people of the land and you want them to stop working? The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people as well as their supervisors. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and make, gather straw for themselves. You shall require of them the same quantity of bricks. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That's what it says. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go offer sacrifice to our God. Lay heavier labor on them. Tell them to get to work. Anytime there's a protest in the news, the people on the other side of the spectrum say, get a job. Am I right? That was true for Occupy Wall Street, Idle No More, Black Lives Matter, the Wet'suwet'en people protesting the pipeline, Fairy Creek protesting the cutting down of old growth forests. I've heard it my whole life. Get a job, right? Go to work. Contribute to society, you lazy bums. Why are you out there protesting? Must be nice. And it's just this criticism of like, wait, you're going to get together and talk about your pain? You mustn't have anything better to do. Get to work. Pretty profound. And it was a profound moment um, eight weeks ago when a lot of people in Canada were driving truck to Ottawa, and you heard it again. Don't they have jobs? <laughs> That's always the response. When a group of people in pain march and speak the truth about their pain, the empire's response is always, they are lazy. That's why they're complaining. They should go back to work. In chapter 7, because my like blitz tour through the, the, the story. In chapter seven, verse 14, we begin the, the beginning of the plagues. It says in 714, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to the Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand by the river bank to meet him. Ah, we began at the river and we're back at the river again. Go meet him at the river and take in your hand the staff that you have. Say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you to say, let my people go, so they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you've not listened. Therefore, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, with the staff that is my hand, I will strike the water that is in the great Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. The fish in the river shall die, and the river itself shall stink, and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink water from the Nile. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over its rivers, its canals, its ponds, all the pools of water, that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Blood. The Nile River, the heart of the Egyptian empire. Remember, the Nile River to the Egyptians is a god. Gods aren't supposed to bleed. The river of happy, the Egyptian god, runs red. 
perhaps you know some scientific reading of the text says, oh, it wasn't really blood. It was just silt from the the runoff from the red, you know, soils up upstream. Or maybe it's some kind of algae that grows red once a year. It, it, it's surely not God. I mean, sorry, it's surely not blood. A and I say. Um, Perhaps, but I think that there's something profound in the story about the blood of the gods. I think the Egyptian priests and the Egyptian priests and the magicians are right there, and they kind of freak out, like, uh-oh, because you think if you worship uh, the river named Happy, and now the river's flowing with blood, you would immediately go to Happy's temple and pray to Happy, like, Happy, please, uh, the, we, the river is kind of key to literally everything. We're all going to die, so hopefully Happy hears their prayers and fixes the problem. Uh, but then when Happy doesn't answer their prayers and the river keeps flowing red, the Egyptians might possibly come to the conclusion that Happy is dead. Gods don't die. This is a dramatic moment. This is a big deal. This is the, this is the whole thing. If, if the river turns to blood, it's game over for the Egyptians. So perhaps this story is about the god of the slaves versus the god of the Egyptians. Perhaps it's about Moses versus Pharaoh. Or perhaps this story is Yahweh, the God of all creation, um, on a mission to liberate the oppressed. And the Nile River is in on it. And all the frogs, and all the locusts, and all the flies, and all the storm clouds, and all the hail, they're all in on it. And they all know something that the humans don't yet know, that the system is about to be radically disrupted. The Nile River flows with blood. Water turning to blood. Later on in the Bible, water turns to wine. At the end of our service today, we will reflect on a wine that is actually blood, a blood that is actually wine. These are big themes in our Bible and big themes in the heart of our faith as Christians. And another big theme in the story, which is one of my favorite things about Exodus that I hope blows your mind, never once in the book of Exodus is an Egyptian given a name. The Egyptian pharaoh is not named. It just says the pharaoh. And, 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 you know, critical scientific readers of the text in the last couple hundred years have been like, well, that's evidence that it's not historically accurate, that this did not really happen. What kind of historian wouldn't put the name of the pharaoh? Typically, in a historical document, it would say, like, in the third year of the reign of King Ramesses III, something like this. But because the writer of the story doesn't include that, well, that means it's a fairy tale. It didn't happen. Fortunately, that dog didn't hunt very long. I mean, it's still probably hunting in some people's worlds, that that's fair. But there's a pretty cool thing about the story. Although the Egyptian king is not named, in chapter 1, the Egyptian, sorry, the Hebrew midwives are. The Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. Now, in that society, um, uh, women, uh, especially women who are enslaved, like these are the, this is the bottom of society. No, no privilege at all. Um, um, the, the enslaved women's job would be to birth more slaves. If you could not do that, the only good in society uh, is to help the other mid women birth more slaves. So these are women who do not have children, who do not have families, who are, they are the most, they are the least of all people. They are the least. They are nobodies. They are literally nothing in the mind of the Egyptian king. And the author of this story refuses to name the great king of Egypt. But immediately in chapter one, make sure you know the names of the Hebrew midwives. So, in fact, this is a big deal. In chapter 3, we read that Moses is like, I don't know your name, and God has to reveal his name. This is the book where God's name is revealed in the burning bush, I am. So the, the drama of who has a name and who doesn't have a name is, is the summary of the whole book of Exodus. Everybody knows the names of the Egyptian gods, but the author of the story refuses to name them. Nobody knows the name of the Hebrew god, but his name is going to be said over and over and over and over. 
The Egyptians don't know the names of the slaves, but we do. In fact, the word exodus is not the name of this book in the original scriptures. Exodus is a Latin word for exit. The name of the book of Exodus in the Hebrew Bible means the book of names. This is the story of the names. Who gets a name and who doesn't? I think, who in this society today do I know the names of? Celebrities, politicians, really rich people. I have no idea the names of the people that made the clothing I'm wearing right now. I have no idea. There's a people in Bonesse whose names I do not know. And when I stop and ask, whose name do I know and whose name do I not know, and why, the book of Exodus enters into my imagination. This is the book of names. At the end of the story, you can't help but say, who cares what the name of the king of Pharaoh is? What is he to us? But we care very much about the name of the least of these. So, the book of names, quite profound. The grand finale of the story, I'll skip all the other plagues, because the first plague is a water plague. The Nile River turns to blood. And the final plague is also a blood plague. So blood kind of is like a two bookends on this great story. The grand finale takes place in Exodus 14, where we have, <clears throat> Pharaoh will say to the Israelites, they are wandering aimlessly in the, sorry, oh yeah, yeah. This is not the blood plague. This is even after that. This is the grand finale where they kind of are finally emancipated from their slavery. We have, um, they've, 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 the Pharaoh has sent them out, has said, just go, 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 go. And so they're going, they're on their way, they're leaving, they're, they're, they're being freed. And it says, Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they're just wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. And then, this is God speaking, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And then I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and his army. And then the Egyptians shall know my name. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and that's what they did. So the big climax in chapter 14 is, you know, the Pharaoh's like, I don't know this God, and I don't know these slaves, why should I care? 14 chapters later, <laughs> now they know. <laughs> it's a grand introduction. This is the introduction of the God of the Hebrews uh, in, in the Bible. Now they will know. The, the, the Egyptians will know my name now. It's the book of names. And so the Nile turns to blood at the beginning of the story, and in the Egyptians' mind, no doubt, it's the blood of a God. The final plague is also a blood plague. In chapter 12, we're told about the, the institution of the Passover, the day of Passover, which is the most important um, holiday, that's not the right word, most important ritual ceremony in the entire um, faith uh, of, of, the, of the whole Bible, I would argue. In chapter 12, this is the final plague, it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. So can you imagine that? This is like just some, regular day, it's been a weird six months, some funky stuff going on in nature, and now, you know, the final plague, God appears, and he's like, guess what? Today is New Year's Eve. You start counting time right now. Tomorrow is a new day. This is New Year's Eve. Forget about December 31st. It's today. Today is the day. So this is the beginning of the new year, arguably the beginning of the new age. Hi, little buddy. Just hanging out? Okay, cool. It says, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. You tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. And if a household is too small for the whole lamb, I love this, you must join its closest neighbor 
Invite the neighborhood over for your feast. Invite your neighbors. I love it. Uh, in, in obtaining one, the lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it, and your lamb shall be without blemish. Um, uh, then there's instructions about the lamb, but it's pretty profound. Um, you're not supposed to break any of its bones. Um, and this is how you shall eat it in verse 11. You shall eat it with your loins girded. Gosh, I wish we used that term still. We don't. We should. Gird your loins while you eat it. Your loins should be girded, obviously. Your sandals should be on your feet and your staff should be in your hand. And you must eat it hurriedly. For this is the Passover of the Lord. This is epic. It's imagine like having a big feast, like Christmas dinner, and you, you, you have a big feast, and obviously you can't have leftovers. That's a sin. <laughs> so if there's more food than we can eat, let's invite the neighbors. Who doesn't have a feast? Everybody come, because we need to eat this all tonight. But keep your boots on and your winter jacket and your car keys in hand, because at any minute, our whole world's going to change, and we must be ready. No time to put shoes on when that great trumpet blows. So you eat the meal with your loins girded, your shoes, your staff. It's like your keys in your hand, ready to go. This is the night that everything changes. This is the night that our whole world is about to be broken open. The sea will split and freedom is ours. And then later on in this chapter, um, God goes on and he says, remember this night. This will be for you the new year. And every time we get back to this day of the year, you will repeat this story. You will have this feast, and you will tell your children about it, and you will tell your grandchildren about it. When your grandchildren ask about this night, it says there in chapter 12, you must tell them about the Egyptian gods who did not know our name. You must tell them the name of our God. You must tell them what you saw on this night. Tell them not just about the blood of the Egyptian God, but you show them this sacred meal. You teach them about the blood of the lamb, the blood of our liberation, arguably, the vocation of grandparents in the community is to tell the story to the grandchildren. That's your job. Tell the grandchildren. When they ask, why do we do this? Why do we sing these songs? Why do we do the bread and the wine? You tell the children what you saw. You tell them about the juice of emancipation. When you are in your own land, in a land of freedom, you tell the children about this night. This story is repeated over and over and over. In fact, the entire New Testament, especially my favorite, the book of Matthew is simply a repetition of this story. Matthew very much presents Jesus as a Moses character. In fact, something that's unique to Matthew that you can't find in Mark, Luke, or John is that when baby Jesus is born, there's a pretty big crisis that takes place where the Herod wants to kill all the baby boys. It's a repeat of the story, right? Herod wants to kill all the baby boys. And, and Mary and Joseph, they have a baby boy. <laughs> Ah, perhaps this baby boy is our Moses. Because in a dream, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, go flee to Egypt. And Jesus goes down to Egypt land. And that's the whole book of Matthew. He's telling old Pharaoh, let my people go. Jesus is the Moses character. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes up on a mountain and says, though you have heard it said, surely I tell you. And who did they hear that said from? Moses on Sinai. He's like, you, last time you had someone standing up on a mountain giving you rules, it was Moses. So let me interact with that for a minute here. And Jesus performs the script. And Jesus is the Moses, uh, the Moses character, uh, teaching about the blood of emancipation. In Matthew 26, it's New Year's Eve. They're having their special New Year's Eve meal, the meal of the Passover. It's a pretty big deal. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' ministry only lasts one year. So there's only one Passover meal. In John, it's three years, but there's one Passover meal in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. 
So there it is, the New Year's Eve ceremony, the New Year's Eve meal. The, the lamb is there on the table. The, the, the wine is there. The bread is there. And Jesus, after giving thanks, takes the bread and breaks it and says, this is my body. He takes that blood of emancipation, the blood of the Passover lamb, and says, this is my blood. And it's a Passover meal. It's New Year's Eve. Because that night, imagine that meal with Jesus, the night he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, they ate that meal with their shoes on and their keys in hand. Going through the motions, the same meal they've done every year. But this night, this night, this story is at once very ancient and very new. This is the night of emancipation. So John's gospel, I have to comment on this for a minute, because John is quite different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make this like a college lecture. It's really hard. Uh, but I, I, got, I'm doing, I, I can hold it together. This will be short. It's like a real quick analysis of the difference between John and the other gospels real quick. So one thing that makes John's gospel unique is that Jesus is actually crucified on a different day of the week. Now I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more accurate, but John is really trying to present Jesus as the Passover lamb. It's a really big deal. So there is no Passover meal um, on the night Jesus was betrayed in John because Jesus was um, dead by the time the Passover meal would have taken place. But I'll, I'll show you this. So the very beginning of John, and this is how we know that this is a big deal for John. When um, John the Baptist is introduced in John's Gospel in John chapter 1. In verse 29, it says, The next day, um, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Behold, the Lamb of God. That's the introduction of Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when you get to the actual death of Jesus in John 19, this is really profound because um, it says um, it's on the day of preparation. So um, uh, John 19, 31 to 37, it says, since it was the day of preparation, so the day of preparation in terms of Passover in the book of Exodus is the day that we would, um, you'd bring your lamb to the, the, the tabernacle or the temple, uh, the priest, and then that lamb would be slaughtered. And then, so it has to be slaughtered in like a ceremonial way. And then you take that lamb back home and you're gonna um, take some of its blood and paint it on, on your door. And then you prepare a meal with the lamb. So the day before the actual eating of the meal, you have the killing of all. The, so imagine that day, you'd have hundreds of lambs being killed all in the same like hour. It'd be quite a day. It says, in, on the day of preparation, John 19, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. So Jesus is dead. This is the moment he, uh, um, he's dead. In verse 28, uh, sorry, in verse 30, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews uh, did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. No kidding, it's the Passover. It's New Year's Eve. It's like a big deal, and it fell on the, the Sabbath that year. So they asked Pilate to quickly have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed, because you can't leave the bodies up there on Sabbath. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the, the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, which was pretty profound, because the Passover lamb, its legs weren't allowed to be broken. Um, and so they pierced the side of Christ, and out of the wound flows blood and water. So two stories about the blood, the blood of a God. Jesus' blood is the blood of liberation. So the moment they pierced Jesus and blood came flowing out of his side would have been the same moment that down at the temple all the lambs were being slaughtered. The blood of the Passover lambs were being shed, and the blood of the Lamb of God is being shed right there on the cross. And so Jesus' blood is the blood of liberation. Jesus is the lamb. 
Jesus' blood is the blood that will set free the enslaved, the grieving, the despairing. In the book of Revelation, the whole drama is, um, behold the lamb who was slain. Imagine being there with Jesus that night, the same meal you've always had every year, going through the motion since you were a kid. But tonight, tonight something is new. Tonight something very old, tonight something very new. Tonight, the beginning of a disruption. The God of all creation, the God of all life, the God of all rivers, the God of all wonder, crucified between two thieves. And now in the story of, uh, of Jesus, it's a little different than the Exodus because the, those in power, the Romans, weren't exactly you know, softened and moved by the death of Jesus. It takes a little bit before the system is really disrupted. Um, but there's something powerful that happens. Those in power were hardly softened, but the only power the Roman Empire has is your fear of death. The only power the Roman Empire has is your fear of scarcity. The only power the Roman Empire had is your fear of the other person, your fear of one another. Should the God of the Hebrews, of the oppressed, of the occupied, think of the Palestinian Jews living in the first century Rome. <laughs> Those are nobodies. They are nothing to the king of Rome, to the king of the world. They're nothing. But on that night, the blood of Jesus. Three days later, that God conquers the grave. As if to say, should you stop fearing the grave, we'd have no need for weapons. We'd melt them down into gardening tools. Should we stop fearing scarcity, we'd garden. Should we stop fearing one another, we'd break the locks on our doors and make a bigger table. Should we meet the God of love, all fear would be cast away. We could begin to dream again. We could rest again. We could march again. We could imagine fresh emancipation again. And so this table, we do communion every week at Awaken. This table, this meal, the meal of the Passover, it, it, the meal where you remember the blood of the lamb, the juice of emancipation, um, this meal is not us remembering a time in the past when Jesus remembered a time in the past and we're just closing our eyes really hard and trying to time travel back 2,000, 3,000 years. That's not the point of this. It's not remember the past. That's not the point of this meal. At this table, Jesus doesn't meet us from the past. He joins us from the future where the justice and righteousness flow like rivers. Logan and Dion led us in a song about that just a little while ago. At this table, Jesus travels from the future and meets us here in this moment. And so we take this meal together in a spirit of readiness. We are ready for your newness, O oh God. We are ready for the wonder of the spirit to do what we cannot do. At this table, we eat in readiness as if to say, may your kingdom come in boness as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come in Calgary as it is in heaven. At this table, we proclaim, move us, O Lord, towards your newness. Newness of strength come in weakness. The newness of wisdom come in foolishness. The newness of life that comes in the blood. Liberation in the feasting. Give us ears to hear our grandmothers and our grandfathers, O Lord, that we may hear their stories. Give us lips to speak of what we've seen. Give us courage like Shifra and Pua, like Moses and Miriam. Come in fire, come in the blood, O bleeding Messiah, O crucified God, O Lamb of the world. At this table we pray, ready our hearts for the new thing you are doing this very night. We've waited long enough. Tonight, 
we dare to speak the words of our pain and tell the truth that it's not working. And so break our addiction to Pharaoh and his system of greed and fear and open us to your freedom in the wilderness, your feast in the shadow of death, your body broken for this, our broken body. This is the night. It begins now, and that's the blood of liberation. That's what we remember every single Sunday is the blood of emancipation. <laughs>